Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Net, uh, in Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm Dr. Roy Barson, psychoanalytic psychologist, author of Core Competencies in Relational Psychoanalysis. I'm a professor at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and founder and director of the Postgraduate Certificate Program in Relational Psychodynamic Therapy. I am your host for today, and I have the privilege of interviewing psychoanalyst Dr. Karen Morota and her new book, The Analyst's Vulnerability on Theory and Practice, recently published and released by Rutledge. Karen and I have been friends and colleagues for many years now, so I'm very excited to be able to uh, have this time with her. And she's had considerable impact on me and a huge impact over the past several years on students at the institution where I teach. My first brush with Karen's work was her article, When the Patients and the Analyst's Past Converge, followed by another article, Completing the Cycle of Communication. Having assigned these articles in my classes led me to assigning her books as well, The Power of Countertransference and Seduction, Surrender, and Transformation. And they became core reading for our students. Students love Karen and her writing. So I invited Karen to conduct seminars at our school, and Karen also became endeared to our students' vitality and interest in her work. And consequently, she dedicated her third text, Psychoanalytic Techniques, to them. Karen writes lucidly and personally. She has a unique ability to take difficult concepts and deliver them prudently, unencumbered, and accessible. I think it is a very rare gift. Her work has been a major contribution in the formation and the clinical lives of not only myself and the students that I've been honored to teach over the years, but to vast numbers of others. Karen, thank you so much for being a faithful, clear-thinking writer and offering so much of yourself and your patience and, and your talents through your writings. Great privilege to be with you here today. Well, thank you so much, Roy, for that very generous introduction. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, you're a good one. <laughs> I'm glad to call you my friend. Likewise. Uh, so let's begin with having you describe your book to us. Your What was your intention in writing this book? Um, how and why did you organize it in the way that you did? And how did you come up with the title for this book? Well, okay, that's a lot, Roy. Um, I actually, the I say that the book converged. I, I ended up, I've never organized a book this way before. And actually, it, it, arrived, it derived in part from conversations you and I had mm-hmm. about how to organize this material. Because the first part, the first half of the book, is about the analyst as a person and how who we are and how we developed in our early childhood experiences impacts not only our vocational choice, but our theoretical choices and our ways of our preferred ways of practicing. So that was that has always been on my mind as something that has not been adequately developed, even though I did write about it in the Power of Countertransference. And of course, Michael Sussman had his two books, uh, uh, A Perilous Calling and A Curious Calling, that focused on that. But I would say it's a subject that has not been taken up broadly. Um, I agree, yeah. And uh, I think it's been widely accepted that our vocational choice, you know, and to some extent our, our basic theoretical approach is is based on, our, at least in part, by our personalities. But I think it doesn't, the literature does not, far enough on that and I became 
really convinced of that uh, as I continue to treat more and more therapists. You know, as a as a senior therapist, that's when people you become the therapist's therapist, you know, or the analyst's analyst. Right. Uh, it, when you're more senior, and so in the last ten years or so, I've been treating many more therapists than I have in the past. Mm-hmm. And that really gave me a keyhole into the early experiences of therapists. Mm-hmm. And, and I began to realize how much all of us had in common, regardless of theoretical orientation, gender, culture, age, that there were, there were some basic mm-hmm. attitudes and fears and needs and desires that seemed to be almost universal across therapists. Now, of course, to differing, you know, in differing degrees, yes. but still they were present. The guilt, the shame, the excessive responsibility for others, the need to, the intense desire and need to rescue and be rescued. And of course, Harold Searles addressed this, you know, in the, in the 50s, but again, that literature was not widely decimated or applied to patients in general. Because he was, gonna, uh, yeah, uh, well, interrupt you there for a moment. Sure. Right, saying right. Two things right now, which I, I really think I want to have you emphasize. One is why we choose to be a therapist. Uh, and you're going down that, that route now with Searles, but the first one you just got to, which I think is another piece that we don't think enough about. And I'm going to even, uh, use your quote of Jacobs and your comment here as well that we each create a theory that is essentially about ourselves and that perhaps why arguments about theory become so heated and personal is that if you negate my theory, are you then negating me? And I think that our, our, um, our theories are deeply personal, even though we try to say, no, I'm a relationist or I'm object relations or I'm a cognitive behaviorist, but they're totally chosen out out of our, our personhood. Don't you? I think absolutely they are. And I think, uh, I think it explains, too, why, uh, with the exception of long-term treatments, and, and really the literature, to my knowledge, has not adequately broken down long-term behavioral, which doesn't occur as often, but it does occur, yep. or long-term eclectic versus psychoanalytic. Longer-term treatments, and that would include the Consumer Reports survey also some years ago, it would indicate that longer-term treatments are more effective. Mm-hmm. But in terms of treatment modality uh, and effectiveness and treatment outcome, there is no significant difference in the short to medium term between psychoanalytic treatments and behavioral treatments or other forms of treatment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, much to our dismay. Yeah. And it's not that psychoanalysis doesn't work. It's that other modalities can work just as well in the shorter term or medium term. And mm-hmm. I think that, the reason for that is because of uh, how similar we actually are. And no matter what we claim intellectually to, as our turf, we end up behaving in very similar ways mm-hmm. based on our shared early experience. Yeah. Yeah. So given that, then what, uh, what makes uh, psychoanalysis unique then? I think, I think psychoanalysis is unique when we're talking about longer term treatments. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I would even say that for myself as a psychoanalyst, my briefer treatments tend to be much more behavioral. And I was I had some early training in behavioral work, and I have a lot of respect respect for behavioral 
interventions, not manuals, you know, or positive thinking per se, but certainly ways of dealing with situations, you know, providing guidance and help with people being becoming more assertive and uh, becoming better at managing their affect. And so I think that, you know, every, every theoretical orientation has something to offer. And I think my shorter term treatments are definitely less, they're less deep, of course, and less analytic in the traditional way that we think about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that psychoanalysis has a great deal to offer to those people who are interested in it and are suited to it and can benefit from it mm-hmm. and and who choose it and who come to us for it. But I, I think it, I don't think anyone really assumes that psychoanalysis is for everyone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and that people don't benefit significantly from, from hybrid treatments and from, you know, other modalities. And I think that the reason that you're getting that, if I'm hearing you correctly, is because this work is highly personal, right? And so how the therapist shows up authentically is probably the primary uh, medium of change. What would you say about that? I, I, I do say that. I would say that. Yeah. And and also, I, I know you want to talk about that later, is uh, the, the last chapter of the book is on therapeutic action. Yeah. And I emphasize throughout the book, too, uh, building on Kantrowitz's work that uh, – the match is such an, an integral part of, I, I think, a successful outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so how did you choose the title? Well, you know what? I didn't finish telling you how I decided on, on the contents of the book. So I'm going to, I'm going to finish that and then I'll tell okay. you about the title. Yeah, so please. then I, I decided to write these chapters, you know, about our, how we choose our theories about our early experiences and make that the first half of the book. And at the same time that I was making all these observations about myself and the therapists I was supervising and treating, I was also, you know, reading the literature in general and finding myself, uh, you know, skeptical and questioning the direction that psychoanalytic treatment was taking in the literature. Mm-hmm. And people always talking about mirror neurons and uh, and connecting that, you know, with the Boston Change Group and the whole. I thought we I thought we were going down, and I think still are, uh, an unhelpful path. In and as much as I love neuroscience and acknowledge that so much of our process is unconscious, I think our goal remains to is self awareness, not. To focus on and rely on unconscious to unconscious experience. And so as much as there is truth in that, to emphasize that the agent of change is an unconscious process, I think is essentially anti-psychoanalytic and rather than psychoanalytic. And I think it's in my, to my mind too, it's also anti-therapeutic. And one of the characteristics of therapists that I uh, have observed is there, there there's a tendency toward passivity and, and conflict avoidance. And I think that this idea of things happening magically from one, our brain to our patient's brain and, you know, vice versa, and the process taking place, the most important aspects of it taking place unconsciously 
really indulges our tendency toward passivity and avoiding responsibility for facilitating the process and for the outcome. Yeah. And so as I was observing all these things, I thought, yeah, this, this gravitation toward these processes that we can't control really feeds into our early sense of helplessness mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and the desire for some type of magical healing or rescue. So mm-hmm. I thought to myself, in order to write the book, it should really contain the sections about us as people and also then look <laughs> at how this is being manifested currently in the literature and the direction we're going in terms of defining treatment. Mm. So that's how the book came together in those two sections. And then I started asking myself, so what is this really about? What word would I use to describe the theme of this book? And I thought the theme of this book really is embracing our vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so hence the analyst vulnerability. Yeah. Well, let's jump into that whole idea of passivity. And, and then maybe bring it back into uh, the idea of vulnerability because I think they're uh, absolutely connected. And I, I, um, I ask, I say, I, I know that you, there's this whole trend in psychoanalysis um, where this idea of conflict, and you quote uh, Dent and Christian on this, has suffered a steady de- decline since 1987. And you're trying to redeem the centrality of conflict within psychoanalytic work. And I have to say, chapter four, I could just feel your energy in reading that. It's like, I'm really serious about this, people. I want to get this back into our our work. And with that, um, I think if we move out of the uh, passivity into action of our experiences with and of our patients, that then really does open this place of vulnerability because we're no longer the sort of um, good object therapist, the good mother, we are now actually into a, a, a real relationship, if you will, that is inevitably going to be conflictual and it's going to create um, far more vulnerability. That's at least my read of you, Karen, but uh, go yeah, ahead. No, that's, 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 a, that's absolutely true. Right. And I think, I think that the only way that we, the way that we have embraced conflict is again, with this focus on not really being responsible for facilitating it, Right. the focus on enactment. And I, I know some people are confused because I wrote this, you know, article with strong conviction about the inevitability of enactment some years ago. And now I seem to be saying, oh, we shouldn't be, you know, considering enactment. But that's not really what I'm saying. I, I made a plea for recognizing enactment and its inevitability, you know, whatever year I wrote that paper. I don't even remember, to be honest, but some years ago. And I would still stand by that. But I think that. Rather that we've gone, again, the, the, the pendulum has swung too far. I think we've overcorrected. And not only do we now accept the inevitability of enactment, we actually rely on it. Once, once again, there's, there's, uh, the Boston Group and others seem to embrace it as the, the therapeutic action of psychoanalysis is the processing of enactments. And I think that flies in the face of the work of Chusid and Jacobs and Many other people who say that enactments can be disruptive, terribly disruptive, they can be damaging to the relationship, and that enactment ideally would be, from my perspective as well as theirs, that enactment would be minimized. That certainly there are some patients who 
can only communicate through enactment for a long period of time, and there is no avoiding it. Mm-hmm. But I think in most treatments, enactment should not be like a, a, a frequent event. The t- and when I say enactment, I'm defining it as this unexpected kind of dramatic you know, right. event where there's acting out on both parts and then, then trying to repair that and understand that. Well, and as I've heard you talk more about this over the years, too, um, it seems to me that the type of enactment that you were talking about earlier in your career um, was this unconscious to unconscious, uh, unexpected event that occurred. But what I hear your movement in is that actually we're probably conscious of this long before it becomes an enactment, but we're fearful of um, bringing to our patients uh, the conflict that's perhaps uh, existing in the room. Yes, exactly. I, again, I, I've always learned so much, even from the time when I was first in graduate school, and I would read analytic literature, and then I would read the case, the inevitable, you know, case example. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, early on, I always noticed that there were, there were quite evident contradictions in the case examples. And I, again, that's rarely discussed. But in, in all the discussions of enactment over the last, like, 10, 15 years, at least I've noticed that while the, the therapist or analyst says I was not aware as by, by the way, the most enactments involve, you know, therapist, you know, suppressed anger or rage mm-hmm. or depression. And there, you know, there are negative, negative countertransference feelings right. that explode that just kind of pop out one day. Right. And often in, a, in not the most therapeutic fashion. So, when I would read these case examples, I would see that along the way, the therapist or the analyst would say, oh, this patient was just, I was dreading seeing him or her, or I was becoming so frustrated and annoyed, or the sessions were just so deadening. And so they were, the, the bottom line being is they were intensely aware of yes. strong yes. negative feelings. Yes. Well, you yeah, know, go, oh, ahead, Ray. go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is uh, the supervision model that I've developed over years has to do with the fact that when I was doing supervision, the uh, therapist would present, you know, their case, why they're presenting it, what they're struggling with, etc. And then I would ask the question, so what are you, what's going on inside of you when you're sitting with this patient? And oh my God, there was like all this other stuff going on. Like, yeah. I don't like this patient, I hate this patient or whatever. And, right. said, and that's the material right there. Yeah. Not what you're trying to do, um, being a good therapist, being empathic, doing good listening. But the patient is penetrating you in some way, and you know it, but you're holding back from it. Uh, you're not letting the patient in on that. And yeah, I think that that's because people feel, even to this day, with all the conversation about our flaws and our weaknesses, uh, people still feel tremendous guilt and shame about reject feeling rejecting toward a patient, disliking a patient, being angry, and certainly any feeling of intense, you know, hatred or sense of wanting to do violence to a patient right. is is completely uh, egotistic for most therapists. Right, and but I think that has to change. I I agree, and you say a couple of things. One is uh, this idea of conflict; it it exists. Period. Yeah, that's for real. Uh, strong yes. emotions. You also 
uh, I, I felt that I love this idea too, where I always talk to with my supervisees about the this idea of following the patient, but often that's an excuse for collapsing and not holding to your own experience of the patient. And you bring a very um, strong sense of you do have something to say. You do hold something, and you need to be able to ha- bring that, even though it's uncomfortable. Right. And you need to figure out a way to do it in a timely fashion that benefits the patient. Yeah. Yep. So that it's not this, you know, just like I, I, I supervise, as I said, quite a bit lately. And uh, some of the young, I, I really love, you know, of course, supervising young therapists because I, I have the ability, you know, the opportunity to influence them in their development. Right. And, but I, I have a young supervisee who, was trained relationally and who believes that what this person is supposed to do is like just blurt out their feelings and their reactions to the patient. Yeah. And, and just engage and talk to them about their process. And that is so intrusive and overwhelming for so many patients. Yeah. Yeah. And to adapt that as a, as a, as a pattern of interacting and then also like because of so much guilt and shame that they haven't managed when the patient identifies something about them, like a challenging patient who will be mailing, you know, the therapist regularly, they get into arguments and they defend themselves and say, well, but that's not what I meant. And (laughs) and it's like, you could have that conversation with anyone on the street. Right. This is not what treatment is about. Right. So there's and so there's, and I, I understand that it's a very difficult balance. And because it's not adequately taught, people struggle. And I think to some extent, we all struggle to determine when is a good time to say something and what is the, at the heart of this and what's a constructive way to say it that this particular patient can hear it. Yeah. And, and, and but we, we do know for sure that sitting on, intense feelings over time and finding no avenue for expressing them in a constructive way to the patient and figuring that out inevitably does lead to enactment. Yeah. So let's go um, back to this idea of of, um, the analyst narcissistic vulnerability. So you, um, when you talk about what you just talked about, the misunderstanding of, I would say, disclosing the therapist's uh, feelings as sort of a, just like a social setting kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what does it mean then when you talk about um, the narcissistic vulnerability and you um, quote Livingston, who states that the word vulnerable means being susceptible to being wounded. Um, and I think that as I'm understanding this, um, you said, I cannot think of a time when anyone in my training told me to expect to be vulnerable and to be hurt, let alone how I'd learned to manage that. I had understood that I would necessarily be replaying my own child endlessly with patients that I needed to understand how and why I was vulnerable. And you go on about that. But what I'm thinking of is that we do, our vulnerability is that we are being susceptible to being wounded, but then we must metabolize that, that, um, that experience rather than just blurt it out, if you will. And I'm wondering if you can say more about that. Yeah, and I, and I think that's where, that's where the aspect of, you know, timing 
and the uniqueness of the relationship, you know, come to bear is that I think sometimes we have to, we have to just let ourselves be hurt. Like for example, a narcissistic, you know, a narcissistically vulnerable patient who needs to come in and say little critical things about you in your office and maybe point out that they have more money than you do, you know, or whatever, uh, little barbs and insults because of their own vulnerability. I think a patient like that does not benefit from being told, you know, you're being nasty or you're hurting my feelings or you're insulting me. But I think that because I've tried it, <laughs> I've tried it when I get, when I kind of get fed up and it really doesn't work because that person's goading is, is being done out of the sense of vulnerability. However, though, I would I do make an exception. If someone really goes too far, and sometimes people do, you know, in a sense deliberately because they want to see, you know, they, they want to make sure that you're not going to be too passive and that you're not going to be walked over, and they'll up the ante to get a response. Mm-hmm. And if someone creates an intense response in me that I know I'm not going to work past in that session or that is staying with me over time, to me, that's the cue that I need to figure out a way to express that and hopefully in a way that they can hear. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and sometimes, and it's not as though my expectation is it's going to go fabulously and smoothly. Right. Because again, we're supposed to be in conflict. So, so like, you know, I've had page, I've told a patient, you know, I don't, I, I really am getting tired of you insulting me. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, you're supposed to be the therapist. What's your problem? Why are you so prickly? You know, and then you end up, and the idea is to argue with them about that. Mm-hmm. But the idea is to set your limits and then hear their feelings about it and listen to their anger or their frustration or many times their relief that you said something. Yeah. Well, this leads to your um, concern about the trend in uh, psychoanalysis around Levinas and the infinite responsibility for others that, uh, and that you say doesn't sit well with you. No. I think this is this combination of being infected, being wounded, but also um, not being um, sacrificial. That in other words, you still know something, as you say, you, you have something to bring. But uh, do you want to say something more about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't think it's a huge trend, uh, you know, uh, there, there's the Levinas, you know, contingency, and I think, and Donna Orridge, who, by the way, I have tremendous respect for, and her book, Emotional Understanding, it was something I used and reference frequently, but, uh, and, and she herself, you know, just to be clear, she decries, you know, a masochistic position, but she does admit in her writing that to follow the Levinas, you know, idea of infinite responsibility can, can and often does lead to masochistic behavior on the therapist's part. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, giving in on too many fronts, putting the patient's needs ahead of our own, our, or even our own normal ways of practicing, indulging. And I, I think that my position is, is that the appeal of Levinas is, Again, this idea of infinite responsibility, because I think sadly, too many of us felt infinitely responsible for our parents and our siblings when we were growing up. And what, as Searle says, what gets hidden in all of that, and Mitchell and others have talked about it too, what gets buried and 
that often acted out later is the tremendous resentment we have about having been put in that position. Mm-hmm. So we feel guilt and shame because we, for, on numerous fronts, we couldn't save our, you know, our injured family members. We couldn't, we can't save our patients. To some extent, we can't save ourselves in the sense of, of, of the rescue that we might like. Yeah. And then we also are burdened with feeling guilt and shame toward the loved ones we desperately tried to save mm-hmm. because of our resentment about that. Yeah. And, and I, I, I find that that's very prominent with therapists. If I, if I too early bring up to a therapist patient that it must have been hard and they must resent their family members for, you know, all the caregiving that they had to do, they very often I get intense denial of that. Mm. That, that holding of ambivalence toward the parents who were, you know, or the sibling or both who were the object of the caregiving, they, mm. there's often so, so much guilt and shame about being angry with them or the possibility of hating them as well as being devoted to them and loving them is, yeah. is unacceptable. Yeah. Well, I think that's why we, what you writing about conflict in this book, because the result of that is conflict avoidance uh, with our patients. Yes. Um, and it's uh, actually, yet at the same time, that's what is usually the working through of that conflict is what is usually most transformative, I would say, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that, uh, I think, you know, the position that I, I claim uh, as, the, as somewhat of an ideal in, in my writing is, is compassionate authenticity. Yeah, right which is where certainly we have some tolerance and understanding of the need to create a safe environment to be more tolerant maybe than many other people would be, but that there's also an equally compelling uh, need for us to be compassionately authentic, to be honest, straightforward, and give authentic feedback that, that people can't find anywhere else. Exactly, and, and, and I think sadly, they often can't find it in treatment either. Right. They, they are begging for it. And I, I give some examples in the book where it's not unusual for a patient to, to keep trying to get a reaction out of the therapist because, because they need that reaction. Yeah. They need someone to come up against. They need someone to say, yeah, that's not good. You know, or I don't like it when you do that. Or, ouch, that hurt my feelings. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, one of my takes on that, Karn, is the history of psychoanalysis is that when we offered interpretations, we were offering the truth of somebody else's uh, intrapsychic world. Um, and what I hear in compassionate authenticity is that I bring myself, but I am open to debate, <laughs> to, to, to talk it out, to work it out, to not say that this is what it is, but this is my experience of this and surrender it into this place of, of dialogue, if you will, which is a hallmark of relational psychoanalysis, I would say. And so I think that piece of how we bring it, if we bring it a certainty um, and that I'm right, that's a danger. At the same time, I've got to bring it with, I'm certain about this in this moment so that I'm not apologizing before I even bring it. But talk to me about it now. Let's work this out and see what, what it is. So sure. that... I, I would say with that, because the question, that's one of the things I would con- uh, contribute, if you will, to this idea of um, a skill set 
for compassionate authenticity. And you speak to a skill set that you believe is required for a clinician when working with conflict. What can you say more about that skill set that you're talking about? about uh, are, are you are you referencing the the? Tell me what no, you're referencing. Actually, no, this is in your chapter four, and you sort of said it in passing, but I wanted to sort of see if you had some actual thoughts about it beyond in in passing, where you say in order for us to deal with conflict. Uh, we have to have a particular kind of skill set. Um, and I'm wondering if you have kind of any words about that particular skill set. Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, that's something that is so absent from our training programs. Yes. Is that I think that, that uh, and again, this is something that group therapy people do, is that we should be routinely from the beginning examining our what our feelings are about our patients from day one. Mm-hmm. And again, as an aside, ideally not treating people we don't like or aren't interested in. Even even very difficult patients are, are often liked or considered interesting by someone. Mm-hmm. If so, if a if a patient just really doesn't ignite any interest in you at all, I think that you should not or or ignites a very negative response initially, I think that's someone that you should not be treating. Yeah. And yeah. I talk about that extensively in the book, but so, but if we if we go from the position of okay, there is a reasonable match, and you're now engaged with that person, and you've provided some you know, uh, term of you know being empathic and understanding, and you've established some sense, some mutual sense of safety, uh-huh. then I think that uh, all along that way, you should still be observing your countertransference. We should all be aware of our own repetitive countertransference patterns our areas of vulnerability across patients so that we come prepared to be, to have that stimulated and to be, to be threatened, you know, mm-hmm. and to feel too vulnerable and to, and to achieve a degree of comfort with that. Yeah. And say, yeah, that's who I am. This is, these are my flaws. These, mm-hmm. these are my hot buttons. These mm-hmm. are the ways that I get, you know, all tangled up, you know, yeah. and, to be, in a sense, be prepared for that to happen and to be able to accept it and not deny it. Mm-hmm. And I think Judy Chusett gives some great examples in her work, you know, of that, mm-hmm. where where a patient insults her and it's very demeaning and, you know, it's a narcissistic entry and it hurts her feelings. And I think that's something we're not taught to embrace. Yeah. And and also that it's it's natural to get angry when you're assaulted also. That, that that anger and even a certain amount of defensiveness is human nature. And I think, again, in terms of skill set, not only do we have to start with, with a keen awareness of our vulnerabilities as well as our strengths, I think that we need to um, have that skill set of being able to identify and accept that, that defensiveness is natural and that what we need to do as professionals is embrace it more than most people I think are able to do. And that, that is a skill yeah. and try and work through the defensiveness to, to minimize it when we're responding to our patients, because yeah. the less defensive we are, of course, the more effective we're going to yeah. be and to yeah. be able to get to the core of what we're feeling, accept that feeling, no matter what it is. And again, then try and examine how that might be expressed in a constructive way with that person. Yeah. 
I think the key word there, though, is that it has to be expressed, and and uh, how to do that is always very tricky. But uh, what I think you're getting at is that uh, the therapeutic relationship is stalled until the expression that is actually present in the room is expressed. Yes, and absolutely. And one of the points I make in the deconstructing enactment chapter is that the other thing I observed in, in looking at case examples, and I, I always encourage people, especially early career therapists, to, to do the same kind of close read of their own on case examples and, yeah. and to do it when they're reading my work as well. <laughs> yeah. Because because you'll find the contradictions and and things that people maybe are that are present that people aren't the authors aren't identifying but are there. And yeah. what one of those that I observed with regard to enactment was not only have the negative feelings been present for a long time, the inevitable the inevitable outcome of not being able to to manage those feelings and accept them and find a way to express them. What happens when people become overwhelmed with negative feelings? Yeah. yeah. They disengage. Yeah. And you will see that. You will see that there's a disengagement. And I think one of the positive aspects of enactment, even though it's sometimes a desperate effort to achieve this, is that it's a desperate effort to re-engage the disengaged therapist. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day who is in therapy, and um, she said, "I know my I know my therapist hates me," and and she said, "But she I even literally asked her, and of course it's denied, et cetera, et cetera." And so she said, "One day I I yelled to her. I says, you know, there are two persons in this room. You know that, right?" <laughs> so uh, it is that. How do we find our way to articulate into that? interpersonal space, right? I mean, isn't that the whole like, big Yeah, I, as I said, I, I think what we have to offer that other people in the patient's lives, as, again, I say, what we have to offer is not that we are better people, you know, right. we are better parents, right? you know, than, than our patient's parents were. Yeah. It's what is lacking for most people is getting that really authentic response. Yeah. So that they can know themselves, have a better core ego strength, a sense of agency that comes from knowing who you are. Yeah. And that's what we have the opportunity to provide. And we yeah. need to shift the focus from being good, all good and accepting and always empathic to, again, compassionate authenticity, because that's how we can really facilitate our patient's self-knowledge, self-acceptance and empowerment. Yes. And you, um, in um, chapter five, I think, or six, I'm not sure, you actually take this, uh, the problem with empathy on. Um, and I'm wondering if you want to talk about the myth of empathy and why you chose to take this on. It feels like you're leading us into that. Uh, yes, in a way I am. I, I think that, again, this, the idea that we are uh, all empathic, meaning that, and, and the idea, too, that, again, with the mirror neurons and the unconscious to unconscious, that there's there's the possibility, which I disagree with, that there is this possibility of, of exactly knowing what the patient is experiencing. Right. That if we, and, and that, A, that's a, I think that's a fallacy, that we, we couldn't have that direct kind of connection to another person's emotions. We always, we're always approximating, even 
you know, when we're having a visceral response, it's an approximation. And I think that the idea that we could have this magical conduit to another person's emotions and that we would always respond positively and helpfully to that. Right. Those, those are fallacies. They're, they're not borne out by the literature. And other disciplines do not uh, portray empathy in that way. And I did a lot of, you know, I, I cite the social neuroscience and social science, you know, and to, toward that end to say, this is not how other people conceive of empathy. Empathy, empathy is an achievement. It's not a given. And that when people are feeling intense pain, and especially now in light of so many people, so many of our patients having suffered some type of trauma, that feeling intense pain is intensely uncomfortable for the recipient, for the listener. Yeah. And that that more often than not, where people are likely to either flee that pain or minimize it or distance from it in some way. For, for their own survival. And the term in social science for that, what, what, what the listener experiences is personal distress. Mm-hmm. But the more you are in touch with your feelings, and again, uh, there's a, the cover of the book, by the way, I'm going to digress for a moment. The, the cover of the book, the blue cube that's yes. on the front, the title of that, that work is Loving Kindness. Oh, wow. And I chose it because I was looking for artwork and I liked, I loved that image. And I saw the title was loving kindness. Coincidentally, right at that time, I had been reading the literature on empathy that said that one of the ways to develop again, a skill set for empathy is to practice, you know, this meditative uh, stance when experiencing another person's pain and the stance that, the uh, meditation, the Buddhist meditation, is called loving kindness. And that they did a study where people who practiced loving kindness uh, and did that meditation could sit much better with other people's pain and feel less personal distress. So that's a very simple thing that also should be included in all therapists' training. So that we're, we're minimizing the likelihood of fleeing or rejecting or over-identifying. Also. Right. And saying, and I, oh, yeah, I know what this person is feeling because this is this is triggering what I experienced in a similar situation. And and very often that is not accurate. Yeah. I, I think, though, that as you talk about loving kindness in your book, it is about, um, in a sense, boldness and conflict and difference and contrast and not um, almost like a pseudo empathy. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean, Roy. Well, that loving kindness, again, could be uh, misunderstood as I'm the all-loving. Oh, snub, yes, right. No. And that's not, that's not what it is. Right. It, it, it's, it's really a practice in, in experiencing affect and getting comfortable with affect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which can be um, disruptive yeah. <laughs> and, and vulnerable. And, you know, therapists, like all human beings, can be very rejecting of people who are in intense pain. and. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I, I've certainly treated people who who have cited things like therapists. One patient said her therapist took out her nail file and started filing her nails when she cried. Mm. And another therapist offered her immediately offered her Kleenex and a, and a mint. 
And other therapists would say, oh, you poor thing. And would it start coming in with, you know, excessive poor baby type comments rather than, and thus disrupting the experience of pain. Yeah. yeah. Rather than allowing the person to process, you know, the needed process of that pain. Mm-hmm. Karen, I want to give you an opportunity to um, talk to our listeners about uh, therapeutic action mm-hmm. and, um, Speak to your basic outline that you have for for therapeutic action. Yeah, well, I I very much agree with uh, uh, Greenberg and uh, uh, Gabbard in discussing that uh, therapeutic action is is a is a multi pronged event. If there are multiple uh, forms of therapeutic action, it's not a single. It's not. It's not. It doesn't have just a single direction, and there's nothing that just simply works particularly with all patients. Right. So I think the right from the head right from the beginning we have to accept that therapeutic action is a complex set of uh, beliefs and behaviors. But I think that I outlined some just basic points about it and number one of course is again the match is if you don't have a good match, then you, if you don't have a match and complementarity, and an ability to really engage with each other on multiple levels successfully, then you're you're not going to have a very successful treatment. Mm-hmm. So, without a good match, you, you therapeutic action becomes meaningless. So, for starters, definitely the match. And again, people could be trained much more than they are to identify match or mismatch. Uh, I agree with that. I'm just thinking uh, for a, a new person, a new trainee starting out. Uh, they don't have the luxury of a match because they need the patient, right? That's number one. And then the other part for myself, I agree with that idea, but I have also known that I've taken on people who I would never have dreamt to be a match, Mm -hmm. that I have come to see, um, uh, come to a very caring, loving relationship with them, actually. Um, So I'm I'm wondering if you could just comment briefly on that. Yeah, it's kind of like an arranged marriage. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There wasn't anything in the beginning, but over time, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. But I, I I think that, again, that's a very delicate issue, but I think that, and certainly there will be aspects of people that we don't care for, even though we, we are capable of engaging with them. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying, oh, if there's anything you don't like about this person or their behavior, don't treat them. That, yeah. that would be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So it, and I think, too, I will also say that early career, you need experience in finding out who isn't a good match. Yeah, a good point, yeah. You know, I don't think anybody can actually totally teach you that. Right, right. You know, we can we can shorten the learning curve on some of these things, but yeah. I think knowing who you can't treat in part comes with experience. Yeah. So with right. that said, I think that uh, when I'm saying not a good match, I'm saying you just know immediately Mm-hmm. that you just don't like this person and you don't want to be in the room with them. Right. And, and therapists do identify that. And they will tell me again with some guilt that they took that person because they felt they had to, because their boss, if the agency wanted them or assigned that person. Right. So I will say increasingly, even at busy uh, uh, community healthcare uh, sites, they are, they are considering the match and encouraging people to uh, ask for a different therapist for a patient they feel they cannot treat. Yeah. So that that is, you know, 
that is entering the zeitgeist slowly. Yeah. And I think that just because you're at an agency or in community mental health doesn't mean you have to provide uh, psychotherapy for every person who comes in the door. Yeah. And yeah. over time, I think the people that we can't engage with and really have distaste for, that becomes more evident and we get to recognize that this is the kind of person we should not be treating. Yeah. Or yeah. For in, in, in my case, too. As you can see, I'm a kind of I'm a rapid thinker. I'm a rapid speaker. Yeah. I have discovered that people who are really like obsessive compulsive, and it's like they're they're they live life at a different speed. <laughs> and, who, and, who, and who say who speak very softly and very slowly. I I really have trouble treating people like that, and it's not because I dislike them. That's not always a matter of dislike. Uh-huh. I just can't get a rhythm with them. Mm-hmm. Our rhythms are too different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, take us to two through five. Okay. So then second, of course, is I do agree, I, even though I believe it's overemphasized, is that initially we have to provide a safe environment and establish basic trust and do that through, you know, concern, uh, curiosity, uh, you know, uh, empathy to the extent that we can provide it. I think there, there certainly is in the beginning of treatment a need for that, creating that safe holding environment where the patient can feel stable and that it's you know safe to venture out into things like conflict or showing sides of themselves that aren't as, you know, appealing mm-hmm. or confessing their secrets. So I think that first the match, then providing that safe environment for as long as person needs it yeah. uh, setting boundaries and providing patient education I think I, I've increasingly heard too many stories especially with people who are who have been traumatized with of people kind of forgoing the boundaries somebody brought my attention to an article that was written in 2013 about how people should certain people shouldn't qualify for the boundaries that you should that boundaries should be a flexible concept yeah. I, I can't reject that idea strongly enough. You know, I yeah. think that creating that this is your time from this time to this time and in a room that is kept, you know, as quiet as possible and where your your safety and health and comfort are utmost important. I think yeah. that I think that that's essential to a successful treatment because that's where people feel safe feeling scary things. That, and, and scary things include things they've been hiding and feelings they don't want to have and conflict with us. Yeah. And if we don't provide that boundary setting, that's not going to happen. We and have I want to tip- uh, uh, focus you also on, on for the listener that that we have the that boundary isn't just like where the that the guild gives us or that we what boundaries we couldn't cross, but you actually give this whole idea that in the context of analysis, I'm quoting you, explaining things like free association, transference, contrast, importance of experiencing motion for the change uh, process are all examples of our boundaries, really, of what we are already doing or will implement in an organized way. So yes, I think that, you're about- yes, that was going to be my next point. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Is that patient, patient education. Again, that's something that's not difficult to teach. Yeah. Is, is, and there's a lot of research that shows that Patients who are incorporated into the treatment from the beginning have what their expectations, any expectations you have of them explained, 
uh, answer their questions about how the treatment works, answer questions about the boundaries, you know, like why, why can't we, why can't we go longer, you know, yeah. I'm upset, that you explain in simple ways what the therapeutic value is of this and, yeah. and what the expectations are and, you know, what you hope to help them to do. Yeah. And people, and you set goals together, and those behaviors enhance treatment and give people a sense of clarity and safety. Yes. Well, I would also say that when we educate our patients, we're actually educating ourselves and reminding ourselves what our job is. Exactly. Uh, that, I think that's an excellent point. Yes. Yeah. We're saying, this is who I am. Yeah. These are my responsibilities, and this is how I will go about the process of trying to uh, help you with these with the issues you have brought to treatment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we only have a few minutes left. Uh, take us to the next two. Okay. The next... The next two are, oh, well, actually I have three, but I think I added on after you, after I, I right. knew about your question. But I think, too, that as difficult as this is, and I, I worked hard in my career to try and work toward this goal, is that we really need to talk about uh, therapeutic guidelines for what works and what doesn't. Yeah. And and I think that, that laying claim to the uniqueness of every therapeutic diet is a cop-out because... The other thing we know is that we all have the same repetitive patterns of behaving and attaching. And that certain patient, even if, even if a guideline only applies to a certain type of patient, you know, or certain situations, it's still important to identify that. Yeah. That this is what tends to work. I, I know that Erwin Hirsch uh, interviewed, um, oh God, who was it? I'm trying to think. A master therapist. I'm trying to think of who it was. Anyway, I'll. And he said, you know, would you set down guidelines? And there's tremendous resistance to that. And the only thing he would say was that he had engaged in bartering, and he had decided he would never do that again. But that he wouldn't speak for other people. And I think that's as far as we get. Mm -hmm. Often is to say, well, I wouldn't do this, but I wouldn't tell someone else not to do it. Uh -huh. Really? I, I would. <laughs> Right, right, right. I would say, you know, I, I don't think bartering is a good idea. I mm. think it should be avoided at all costs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I think that I think we can start saying, you know, these are some things that we know pretty much have the potential, at least, for being helpful. And here are some things that we think have a very low probability of being helpful. Mm -hmm. And we just start there. Okay. All right. And then also, of course, identifying transference, countertransference patterns, which I've talked about. And our mutual need to influence each other and how that often results in us getting bogged down in power struggles because the patient's trying to change us to fit in with their established patterns and we're trying to change the patient into accommodating our wishes and desires for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that inherent power struggle in the relationship uh, is overlooked. And yeah. I think we need to, to look at that more with each in each individual treatment. And then finally, the freely engaging in conflict and accepting and giving, being comfortable with accepting and giving negative feedback. Yeah. I want to um, actually, as we come to an end, do two things. One, I, just where you ended there, I want to quote actually what you say there, because I think it really is cumulative in, in our discussion today and what you're saying in the book. And then just give you an opportunity to say whatever you would like to say to our listeners before we end. But, uh, Karen, you say this, 
I have focused my own work on the role of the analyst in completing the cycle of affective communication. If one accepts that emotion is the currency of therapeutic action, then it is incumbent upon us to deal more directly with the emotion that flows through the analytic diet. You go on, I'm consistently impressed with how often both my patients and myself are relieved by some exchange centered on observing each other's negative emotions or missteps. Yeah, I think, again, I, absolutely I believe that. I think, I think and that, that speaks to the issue of self-disclosure as well. Yeah. That, you know, I, I am generally not in favor of, of elaborate, you know, disclosures of personal information, that that should be kept to a minimum, because I don't, I, sometimes it's needed for a context, for the patient understanding our feelings, but that, the, again, the currency, I think, in self-disclosure and therapeutic action is is affect. It's yeah. all about affect. Yeah. And people need emotional responses, again, to, to give them that that essential emotional affective feedback that they often did not get or did did not get adequately, receive an adequate amount of in developing. And I don't think any of us really are perfect at that or ever were. And again, like for example, like a, a, a patient who has a problem with rage, those patients typically don't do that well in treatment because the therapists repeat the same thing that other people do. Yeah. They, they either pacify that angry person or they reject them or some combination of those two and, and ending in a, a failed treatment. And what does the angry you know, and, and even abusive patient need? A therapist who will constructively, not in a retaliatory, nasty way, who will constructively confront that person about their negative behaviors and let them know the impact they're having on other people. And people, and I always say, that's the hard work of treatment that people are paying us for. Right, exactly. That's what what we can provide that the person on the street or the friend or even even the partner or lover cannot provide in an adequate way. That's the hard work of doing treatment. Yeah, thank you. Uh, any last word you want to leave for our listeners? I've just, of course, relished this time. It's been wonderful to be in conversation with you on, on this book and such a good one. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I, I, I always end with saying I encourage therapists, and particularly, particularly early career therapists, to embrace all of their emotions and to not feel guilt and shame about them and to figure out a way to navigate their relationships with their patients without Mm. feeling excessively responsible and without feeling guilt and to talk about who they really are and what they actually do in treatment. Mm. That's a wonderful summary. Yeah. Thanks, Karin. Always good to be with you. Thank you, Roy. Always a pleasure. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.